I love this place. I love this place. It's so good for my soul to be here with you this morning. And I love preaching here. This is my favorite place to preach in the entire world because I know what this room has meant to me over the years. And I believe that what happens here matters. And that's not just true of me, it's true of you too. This matters. And although it's my favorite place to preach, it also is the place that makes me the most nervous. Nerves always indicating something that is important. And this morning, I am just as nervous as the very first time I preached in this room as I talked about the Pharisee I found in me. See, we, we often have conversations and we reflect on what it is we want to be when we grow up. And often we have these lists of what it is that we want to do when we are older. And I had one of those, but I also had a list of what I didn't want to be when I grew up. And surely a Pharisee was on that list. See, anytime you read about the Pharisees and you encounter them, in the scriptures, they come off as these like ugly, evil creatures always thwarting God's mission. I think of the Nazgul from Lord of the Rings or Dementors from Harry Potter, maybe even the hyenas from Lion King. People who are positioned to thwart what it is that the king is doing. And so they're not really attractive, though they do have some redeemable qualities. They had an incredible command of scripture. They were very strong in their convictions. And yet, as we look at Jesus' words to them, mainly in Matthew chapter 23, we see that there's many things that are not redeemable about them. How often the Pharisees acted like barriers to the kingdom of God. That they were meticulous about religious observance. And that they were hypocrites, both in what they said and what they did. And so those things I have done too. And so I recognized that there was a Pharisee in me, even though I never intended on it. And so then I thought it was my duty to remove that Pharisee. That's what I shared about that very first time here in the Anderson Chapel. But the Pharisee is not the only thing that I haven't wanted to become in my life. I also never planned or intended on becoming a Saul. I never planned on becoming a leader who got caught up in the giftings that were given to them, a leader who was selfish of the success of the people around them, a leader who intentionally or unintentionally hurt those around them. I never planned on becoming a Saul, and yet I did. And so when I recognized that, I thought it was my duty to remove the Saul in me. And the third person that I found, the third title that I've occupied, calls me to invite this prayer over my life. Empower me to love others the way you love me. I never intended on becoming a Jonah. And I did. An individual whose relationship with compassion would be best described as absent. Jonah's not the first person I think of when I think of compassion. I don't even really think of the virtue in and of itself. I think of the organization that has bumper videos before every Christian conference and has booths in public squares inviting me to alleviate poverty. That's what I think of when I think of compassion. And because of that, my definition of compassion began to believe it's just another form of Christian love 
with a twist. Just another way of repackaging the same thing. But compassion is different than that. It's more than just love, but specifically, it's the feeling of sorrow. It's sympathetic pity. It's concern for others who are suffering or misfortunate. And that's what we encounter when we get to the book of Jonah, when we get beyond the children's book ending of the salvations of Nineveh, and we get to see God challenge Jonah's response to what just happened. And in that, God challenges our view of compassion. And we're called to consider the Jonah that exists in us. So at this point of the story, we we know that Jonah eventually makes it to Nineveh. Nineveh being the capital city of the nation that soon will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and scatter its people, that being Assyria. And in being the capital city, Nineveh characterizes and embodies the nation's persona, that of violence and corruption. This is where Jonah is. And as he preaches and God comes, the people of Nineveh turn. The king and all of its people turn to God and repent. And yet Jonah walks away from this experience dispirited. And that's where we pick up in this story. We're gonna start in Jonah chapter three, verse 10, and then we're gonna read through chapter four. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That's very important. Jonah was displeased exceedingly because God had relented on Nineveh. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew that if he did, God would be compassionate to this group of people that Jonah saw as evil. And Jonah's probably referencing Exodus chapter 34. The moment where we get God's character to reveal to us after the Israelites begin to worship the golden calf. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And if Jonah wasn't referencing Exodus, maybe he was referencing Joel chapter 2, 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That is the God that Jonah serves. That is the God who we serve. And if that's not enough for you to convince you that our God is compassionate, then we should actually know it all the more. Luke 7, 13 says, When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Matthew 15, 32 says, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they may faint on the way. 
Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Luke 19, 41 to 42, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if I had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew this was who God was. And that continued, as we saw, through the person of Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of compassion. It is a part of his nature. It's something that we can bank on. So this displeased him. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He would rather die than those that he sees as evil receive compassion from his God. And the Lord said, do you do, you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city. Mind you, he went out alone and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, still hoping that God would send calamity, that he would not move in compassion. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it may be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. In other translations, I will say to save him from his evil. Because what was inside of Jonah was evil. It's not just that he's like sweating and he's too hot because of the sun. It's to save him from the evil that he is showing. So he's very quick to see it in Nineveh. But there was evil inside of Jonah too. And so God, out of his compassion, not only relents on Nineveh, but relents on Jonah too and provides him shade. Because God is compassionate to all. He is moved by compassion. It is who he is. And when this happened, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And that should trigger our memory of verse one. So he was exceedingly displeased that God showed compassion to the Ninevites, but he was exceedingly glad that God would choose to show compassion to him. There's a hypocrisy there. It's skewed by Jonah's understanding of who is deserving of God's compassion. I'd venture to say that we share that same perspective. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, that should trigger our memory that when God asked him, if he should be angry because he was compassionate on Nineveh, he didn't respond. He didn't have care. He didn't have compassion for Nineveh, but he had compassion for the plant, for what brought him comfort, what brought him compassion. That he was angry about. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left is a statement about spiritual blindness and also much cattle. Period. Book is over. Jonah doesn't get the opportunity to respond. And so we're left without Jonah's response. And the book is designed that way to bring a question to our hearts. What's our answer? Do we believe that God should pity them? Do we believe that God should extend himself in compassion to these people that we may say are evil? And we wrestle with that tension. And most of the time we come to the conclusion that of course he should move with compassion and therefore I should remove the Jonah that is in me. That I should remove this sense of a lack of compassion towards the people around us. Is that not my duty to remove that, to be more like my God? And then we can extend that. Is it not our duty to rid ourselves of these flaws in our character that are personified by different characters like Pharisees and Saul's and Jonah's? Is it not our responsibility to get rid of these parts? And I would say no. That's not our job. And this is what has taken me far too long to understand. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. Oswald Chambers says this, the true expression of Christian character is not in good doing, but in God likeness. If the spirit of God has transformed you within, you will exhibit divine characteristics in your life, not just good human characteristics. God's life in us expresses itself as God's life, not as human life trying to be godly. The secret of a Christian's life is that the supernatural becomes natural in them as a result of the grace of God. And the experience of this becomes evident in the practical, everyday details of life, not in times of intimate fellowship with God. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. See, we can love others the way he loves me because the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 It's not about refining your dead self. It's about walking in the new life he has given you. He has redeemed your life to be about others. And so we don't need to spend so much time looking in the rear view mirror, looking at the dead self that he has already redeemed. See, as I try to remove the Pharisee and remove the Saul and remove the Jonah that's in me, I'm just working on a dead corpse when he has already given me new life that I can walk into. You can love others the way he loves you because God's love has been poured out onto your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans chapter five, verse five. It's his love poured out into you that drives compassion. It is not your man-made construction of what compassion looks like. It's not your human effort and behavior. It's God's love that has been poured out into your heart. 
And so, if God's love has been poured out into your heart and flows through you, you should never experience any lack when it comes to compassion. Because if it's sourced on him, sourced in him, it should never run dry. My compassion does, but his never does. So if it's God's love in and through me, I am never needing to restrict compassion from flowing from me. I never have to be concerned about not being moved by compassion like my God and like my Lord because if it's sourced in him, I never will lack in that. So we can do it. We can love others the way he loves us because he has called us to love one another as he has loved me. John chapter 13, 34 to 35. And so because he has loved me and only asked me to love others as I have been loved, it's an experience that I know. It's something that I have. It's not an abstract concept. It's not beyond me. It's what I have experienced for myself. And so then I replicate that in the lives of the people around me. Because the love you have experienced is not known to you because you are lovable. It's quite the opposite. The love you know and have experienced, it's because you're unlovable. And that's really hard for us to hear in a world where we're desperately searching for worth, desperately looking for people to tell us you're worthy, you have value. It's in your unlovability that you know the love that he has given you, so now you can give it to others. And we know that because that's his nature. He is compassionate to those who are suffering and misfortunate. He is compassionate to those who are suffering in sin. He is compassionate to those who have the misfortune of being separated from him. And that is me. It's because I am unlovable that he has loved me. And because I've experienced that, now I know how to move in compassion towards other people. You can love others the way he loves you because the kingdom values generosity. And so we are to be generous in our behavior to others. That as we are compassionate, it shouldn't be subjected to our own personal affections, to our likes and our dislikes, to our preferences. So it doesn't matter if your personalities clash. It doesn't matter if you get along. It doesn't matter if you have similar interests. Because the kingdom values generosity. And so I am generous to other people in spite of my own personal affections. That should not shape or restrict my compassion. We are to be moved with compassion, period. Towards all, period. Because that's what we see that our God and our Lord does. And so we can... We can love others as we have been loved. And that's why we pray, empower me to love others as I have been loved. Because the point is that compassion's source is not you. Thank God for that. Compassion's source is not you. It's not about the work you do. It's about the work he's done. 
That is why you can be compassionate to the people around you. And it's because of that that we know we can. Because it's not about removing the Pharisee and the Saul and Jonah, but it's about allowing our glorious king to reign in our lives so that those things are no longer seen. It's not about me trying to construct and manicure my life so that I am ready to be compassionate. It's about allowing him in my sin, in my shame, in my unlovability, is to experience that love and then replicate and show that to other people. I've tried so hard to like create a package of compassion that I can give, but it's not about that. It's about what he's done. Because of what he did on the cross, I have the ability to love other people, to show a compassion to those who are suffering and misfortunate. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. And the need for compassion is everywhere. Our world is toiling with poverty and exploitation, with gender and racial inequality, with sickness, and more. And sometimes these things that we believe require compassion seem too far and too great, too beyond us. And yet compassion is needed for many different forms of suffering. And it's knocking on your door from the room next to yours, from the row behind you, from the table beside you. Mother Teresa, she extended her ministry of compassion into North America because when she was here, she saw suffering that she saw was going to cripple the people spiritually. It was in poverty of materials like she experienced back in Calcutta. But she came to North America because she saw that people were suffering from loneliness. That was her reason for coming, from extending her mission. Suffering is found in many different forms, and it's not that far away. And so what, what is our standard of compassion to be? How do we know what's enough, what's too far? How, how do we gauge that? I look to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which says, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. And I think that we've grown to hate that word. We reject perfection in many ways. But that's who he is. And that's the standard that we're called to. And that as we embrace the scriptures and live the life that he has afforded to us because of his compassion on us, we move towards perfection in him. And so we should strive to be people of compassion because we are the recipients of the greatest act of compassion known to history. That as he died for us, as unlovable as we are, suffering in sin and misfortunate to be outside of relationship with him, he came for us. So then that calls me to ask, how far will you go? How far will you go to show compassion in a world that probably won't replicate it back to you. In a, in a community where you may not feel like you're receiving compassion, when the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, how far will you go to extend compassion to the people around you? 
Will you be moved by compassion when you want to stick up for yourself? So how far will you go? Will you go to the point of convenience? At the point that it requires more of you than you're willing to give, is that how far you'll go? Or will you go to the point of obligation? The conversation that you have in your head that says, like, I know I should, but I don't really want to. Because that will get you so far. Will you go to the point of guilt? Where I will extend compassion because I feel guilty if I don't. Will you go to the point of sacrifice? where you can actually count the cost of what it is to give, to move in compassion to the people who are suffering and misfortunate around you? Will you go to the point of death? See, we are the recipients of the greatest compassionate act because he went to that point of death so that I could be alleviated from my suffering and my misfortune. I'd invite the band to come up and join me. Students, I'm really done with hearing this excuse that I need to be in a place of health before I can love or be compassionate. Don't really, I'm not really interested in hearing that anymore. In all of its renditions, it's said differently. It's because you are unhealthy that you know how to move in compassion. It's because you recognize that Pharisee, that Saul, that Jonah in you, and because you've been the recipient of compassion nonetheless, now you know how to move in compassion. If you're waiting to get to some place of health, I feel like that's a misrepresentation of the gospel because it's in the lowest of our lows that he came for us. And if you're waiting to get healthy before you begin to move in the characteristics of God, you're going to be waiting for a long time. You think I'm up here healthy, free of sin, disciplined in everything he's asked me to be? If you wait to be healthy before you show compassion or lead or or step out in faith, or to be generous, you're gonna be waiting a long time. Because I don't know if you are gonna be complete until you're with him again. It's in my unlovability that I understand compassion. So it's not my job to remove this Pharisee and remove this Saul, but to add what it is that God has shown me. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. Martin Luther, the German philosopher, not the king, states this. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, 
but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, there is his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? He was moved by compassion. And the book of Jonah and this quote, they speak to the deepest, the most horrendous suffering and misfortune. That is spiritual separation from God. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. How? As Mother Teresa said in an interview shortly before she passed, as she reflected on her ministry and the thousands that she's touched worldwide, she says, it starts with one. You guys can be an incredibly compassionate group of individuals. He has given you everything that is required, everything necessary to carry that out. But because you cannot do it alone, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, empower me to love others like you have loved me without preference, without discrimination, in the depth of the evil we see and the evil we know. Lord, empower me to love others the way you have loved me. Perfection. Matthew 5, 48. Lord, empower me to love others the way you do until in you it's perfected. Let's go to work and be compassionate towards all, especially to those who are far from him. to those around us. Lord, empower me to love others the way you love me. And you love me fiercely. And you love me radically. That it's in my weaknesses, Lord, that I boast all the more. That your grace, so thankfully for me, is sufficient. And Lord, I pray that we would not grapple with our unlovability in any way that's detrimental. If anything, Lord, would it inspire a greater sense of gratitude for your nature and the way that you love us and that you created a plan to move in compassion towards us. Would we not resist or hesitate to move into opportunities to show compassion? Lord, would we not look to our own convenience? Would we not be motivated by guilt? But would we willingly sacrifice that we would show concern 
pity and sorrow for those around us who are hurting. You asked us a question, should you not have spared Nineveh? And when we are right with ourselves, we know yes, of course. Because there is an evil inside of me that you were compassionate towards as well. Would that recognition motivate us forward towards compassion to all people? In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we proclaim, as we speak over our lives, a belief that we will do exactly that.